Hey, I'm here with John, and uh, today we were going to talk a little bit about the uh, third book in C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, That Hideous String. I have to admit, we, we actually made a run at this, and the recording didn't turn out well. So John has come, and he's here at the house. Yes, we're and, here in person. <laughs> so we're going to try it again, and it was such a good conversation that we'll see if uh, we can even make it better. But John, in the in the three, if you can run down then for us, uh, what, how does that hideous strength, the kind of the story, and how is it kind of the summation of the three? Yeah, I'll try to do a brief summary of all of the trilogy. And in the first book of the trilogy, because in that hideous strength, you actually do meet characters who um, are from the first book and the second book. In that hideous strength or rather in the the space trilogy, you're dealing with a professor of philology, Dr. Ransom, and he's out on a walking tour, and he gets abducted and taken to Malacandra, which at some point you find out is Mars. On Malacandra, he meets different kinds of beings, the Hrasa and the Sorns, and also then an angelic type of being who rules the planet. And the name of the being actually is Malacandra, as well, and sort of angelic, we're not really for sure. I've read more Lewis isn't necessarily equating these oyarsas with um, angels, but they're some type of spiritual being. And then in the second book, he is sent on a mission by Malacandra to Paralandra, which is the planet Venus, and also there's this goddess-type angelic being who is uh, named Paralandra that he'll meet at the end. In the second book, he meets an original couple of this planet who are going to populate the planet. And it seems as if evolution has brought the planet to this place. So it's a very new planet in its growth. But of course, God is in the background um, having all things work out to his purposes and Ransom is a part of those purposes. And while he's there on Paralandra, he meets a chemist from the first book, one of his kidnappers. And his name is Professor Weston, or uh, Dr. Weston. And he is a chemist who is set on making sure the human race survives forever, and in some way maybe even becoming immortal. It's very vague in Weston's mind. And may- maybe it's, it's good to pause here that... Uh, you know, Lewis, I think part of the genius of Lewis, that he's writing this during World War II, which you might think he had information on Hitler, and but I, I think he probably did not. Yeah. But he has such insight, I think, uh, into what's actually occurring around yeah. him, simply because he has a kind of spiritual, theological insight mm-hmm into the nature of evil. And that's interesting because the science, it's in that hideous strength, the book we're talking about today, but is definitely the science of the chemist Weston, is what we call eugenics. And eugenics was popular uh, during the 1920s and 30s, and especially during the 40s, but really only in two nations. That would be Germany and the other, the United States. (laughs) And it's still, the, the irony is you still have a guy at Harvard University that has continued a eugenics-like study, I suppose fully funded by the, sure. the institution, that is pure racism. And so what you get in, in, this, in Lewis's portrayal of evil is the privileging of science, of mathematics, devoid of any kind of uh, moral grounding or you know, a theological mm-hmm. understanding, 
and even maybe we, you know, uh, principles that we could all agree with. Uh, yeah, it's a very, it's a squeaky clean evil. Yeah, it's it's nice. Who who could deny that we would want to better the human race and prolong it forever and cure diseases and everything? Yeah, yeah we're going to. And, and so the idea here is that you could almost that the, the notion of the greater good or the notion of prompting you know evolution on in its course you know uh, that there is a kind of morality that is lends itself then to pure evil and Lewis's mm-hmm. I think genius is in capturing I mean he's he's it's fiction, but maybe it's only in fiction that you could really get at these characters uh, who, you know, you really encounter these yeah. people. And He's pulled back the shutters uh, that are hiding the truth of ideology. It's the ideology we all live in, and he's showing what's really there. And it's there in, you know, the, the, uh, in that hideous strength, it's uh, this little college, and, uh, of course... Lewis is intimately associated with the supposed, you know, intellectuals and the kind of superficiality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that the, that the very superficiality that you would have you, you would encounter in the academy then and now is precisely that which gave rise to the evil of the 20th century in fascism. Document and, that. Yeah, uh, that there's no question, mm-hmm. and of course the intellectuals that survive and and continue to promote this stuff. It's always I, I'm always a little shocked that that these people are still mm-hmm. here, and not just in some sort of hangers-on fashion. No, they're still at the center of of uh, university uh, science of the yeah. sciences yeah. of the philosophy of the religion of the. You know, the places where we would expect uh, uh, people to at least take account of history, in a very recent history, um, that it it's almost operating in a vacuum. And that's mm-hmm. what you get, I think, in, in uh, that history. And that's good that uh, Ransom, or Professor Ransom, is actually having the opposite experience. So before we get to that hideous strength, as he goes to Malacandra, the planet Mars, and he meets uh, these animal-type creatures who are rational and intelligent, but they have a different type of reason than he ha- he does, and it takes Ransom a while to appreciate that, but he does appreciate it. And he ends up becoming more at one in what he considers God's creation. Ransom's a Christian, and the universe is our universe, and Lewis, of course, being a Christian, is still the Christian universe. So that by the time you get to that hideous strength, what is going on is you actually start out with other characters than Ransom. He's going to play a major part in the book, but... Lewis having already developed the character of Ransom in such a way that he becomes um, almost, he's working in harmony with the divine plan. He is in many ways uh, already experiencing life as one who 
has been a very mature Christian and is at one with God's work in the world and is going about doing that work. That's where Ransom's at. And so Lewis pulls you back to where uh, normal people are living. And Ransom is a very normal person in the first two books, so you see a transformation with him. But you get this couple. They're married unhappily, probably, and both in some way in academia. Uh, The husband, Mark, is a fellow at Bracton College, which is the little college Dr. Axton was talking about how that all the trouble starts there and then Jane his wife who it seems to be working on her PhD or she's working on a dissertation and she is the literary mind of the two Mark is a sociologist but his particular version of sociology seems to be underpinned by all these ideas of eugenics so you get little glimpses of that in the book how Mark he doesn't think of people he thinks of populations he doesn't think of uh, human beings, but he thinks of miners and of agricultural workers and people that are dispensable and people that need to be changed. And he thinks of areas in England that way too. And so he he plays the role here of kind of the Mark and his wife are kind of the they are in many ways starting in the same place and they're going to diverge. Yes, and that Mark is taken up into the nice organization gradually but there's nothing really wrong with Mark he's just ambitious and he's willing to do what he needs to do not only to help to better the human race but to advance his own career and he just wants to fit in we've all experienced that you go to work somewhere you are going to school somewhere and you immediately see what the in crowd is, and then there may be everybody else. And Mark just wants to fit in. And so he gets taken up even at Bracton College into sort of the group of people that think they're running the show anyway, and they think they're bringing the nice corporation into this town, of little village actually of Edgestow. Uh, And, of course, the nice just destroys the village completely, literally taking people's homes, but destroying any type of natural beauty or history that might have been there. Uh, And they're searching for the body of Merlin. And you get, uh, right at the beginning, Lewis actually in the preface tells us that, you know, this is going to be a, a fantasy book like the ones that he writes are, but you don't get the feel. He's done such a good job of blending the the mundane and the enchanted in this book i think but what you find out is that jane is having these dreams and in her dreams jane seems to be able to either see the future in some way or at least have visions of things that are happening simultaneously with her at the same time that she's living but in faraway places and so she begins to have visions of what's going on in the nice without realizing it and so this, the scene is set for sort of a battle just between the town, between people who have morals and people who are ethical, and then the nice, who in the name of the greater good is completely immoral and doesn't mind who they kill or vivisect. Um, but then on another level, you realize you're reading about a spiritual battle between forces of good and evil. And that's, uh, again, Lewis's, uh, you know, the... Uh, the in, inside the inner circle, the core of the inner circle, uh, you know, where you would f- expect to find the true essence of things. Uh, and of course, it, in some way, you, you're taken in, into this, you, you think that the head, mm-hmm. and he means literally a head, 
that <laughs> I've severed the head of a uh, physicist, I guess, uh, Al Kazan, who is a Turkish physicist scientist who is living in uh, France and who has done something illegal, and so they're going to chop off his head. And, but of course, the knife gets his head, and they animate the head. And the people who are caring for the head, uh, his literal severed head. I think that they have done this wonderful experiment and they've preserved the mind without the body. And this is the future for humanity. But of course, really what is happening is Satan himself is speaking through this head to a select few. Uh, but you're not really, the story doesn't focus on Satan. And I think that's key to what Lewis is doing because his picture of this evil, this satanic evil at the center of the nice is there's really nothing there. And that may be the, the, the reason that that hideous strength in its portrayal of evil is in some way, I don't know if satisfying is the right word, because it, actually it may be more unsatisfying, but more connected to the reality of the evils. Whereas in, you know, Paralandra, he just beats the devil up. You, you know? can punch evil in the face in yeah. Paralandra. Uh, but not so. And, you know, the more I think about this, that's probably intentional. So in the vision Lewis gives you of Paralandra, of a place that is unfallen and in harmony with God, maybe evil is that simple. It's something that you can beat around and kick out. But in a place like Earth where evil has taken root in the hearts and minds of individuals, it's not so simple. That it's more insidious, it's more ingrained and... I don't know, maybe my own recent experience makes me think that it precisely takes root in those institutions that would hide behind the name Christian and the name, uh, you know, that would make them respectable. That's precisely where you encounter the sort of characters that Lewis Mm -hmm. is describing. Yeah, which the nice, which is, uh, you know, all about science and furthering on humanity, they're fine with Christianity, in quotations. They're fine with at least believing in God and the spiritual... They even have a couple of priests, I mean, right? They don't care for Jesus very much, but yeah, yeah they're, they're fine with all yeah, that. Yeah. And uh, it's sort of a... Lewis works in a Hegelian, you know, that it, it is the passage, uh, you know, uh, through modern philosophy and idealism, uh, really to a kind of logical positivism, I suppose, uh, that everything is, you know, subject to to proof. Um, And that if there is not God, well, we'll we'll make him. Mm -hmm. uh, And so it is kind of the Hegelian notion of uh, God as part of the the system. But what you get in the the characters is, is the most revealing, I think, that what this form of thought does it empties these people of their humanity. It empties them of the capacity to to name evil or even to recognize evil. So you have these two characters that you eventually find out are really all the nice is. There's all these other people who think they're working for the nice, but they really don't aren't doing anything at all. Uh, you have the deputy director who is with her, and you have... Uh, another professor that's working for the NICE, and his name is Professor Frost. 
And both of these individuals have given over what it means to be human to some force that neither of them understand, but has made one, Professor Frost, a complete and utter materialist who has a complete and utter disdain for the material. And he doesn't believe in emotions, he doesn't believe in uh, anything that we might call art or love or anything like that. Everything's a chemical reaction, but of course... He's one. He sees the future as a bodiless future, and so you're left thinking, "Well, uh, he must. He's a little mixed up." But then the other character, Wither, has given himself over to just endless lying conversation, and there's nobody home, so he's able to have conversations with people all day long. He's constantly talking. There's no truth to what he says at all. There's really no content to what he says at all most of the time and you get that with the relationship between him and mark mark continuously asking whether what do you want me to do here at the nice and mm-hmm. whether oh just hey, you know we, we wouldn't talk about it like that yeah uh, <laughs> we wouldn't we wouldn't say anything in those terms just you know you just need to make yourself uh, useful and he never and, and I, I mean this guy is just so much like people that, that john and i both know and that have run organizations that uh, that you never get your feet with them. You never quite know what's wh- quite. You can't quite grasp what they're saying, and yeah. you and you can't quite get a handle on what's happening. And of course, the genius here is that Mark is is always just sort of he's enough of a uh, he's naive enough, and Lewis keeps emphasizing, and he is so very young, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, that you you almost want to forgive him, you know, for his stupidity, but of course the stupidity is precisely then the means that the evil is able to take hold. Yeah. And that's what I love about this book is that we, as theologians, describe sin is uh, just by first using the original sin in the garden, trying to displace God trying to become the arbiters of what is good and what is evil. Humans becoming ethicists, as Bonhoeffer says. And what Lewis has done is taken that up and included it into this story in such a way that it has made it so real. It's not an abstract idea. Yeah, that really all is all that evil is in the end. Humans trying to displace and become God. But what that looks like hits very close to home. That just looks like ordinary life for most of us in the name of a common good uh, that is completely willing to throw away anybody that gets in the way. Maybe I'm just getting old, but uh, you know, I, I think that <clears throat> my, the, the, the ability to name evil and to see it, um, you know, it becomes stark. You know, this was, I think, the genius of a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I think the one that, that Lewis is putting on display here, is that most of us, in fact, may be more like Mark, or uh, that that the devil may be sitting right next to us, not not in a in a literal fashion, but in in a sense of the embodiment of evil, and uh, and and many of us are, have not uh, done the the homework or done the the hard thinking. Uh, to be able to have the refined skills that it actually takes to say, no, this is the devil, this mm-hmm. is evil. And of course, that's what that's the means by which the Nazis come to power in Germany. They're not over and against the Christians, they're using mm-hmm. the church. And 
And that's the way that the nice, you know, I, I mean, I assume yeah. that he's playing with the acronym there. They're nice people. <laughs> their, their, their ideas are nice, you know. They're going to, to bring about the betterment of humanity. You wouldn't mind eating dinner with these people. Yeah. The, you should, but you wouldn't. <laughs> but just to rub shoulders with yeah. them. Just yeah. to say you had dinner with yeah. them. Would be okay. Yeah. And so I think that, and of course Jane is on, in the meanwhile on a road in the opposite direction, she she sort of split, but uh, in a sense, her dreams in, enable her and her association with mm-hmm. these ordinary people. Yeah, and, and you know that's the thing that Mark has long ago stepped on the, you know, left the the friends that uh, were of any way valuable because they were so ordinary, and and of course these are the precisely the people. What's the uh, the the professor that. Uh, Ransom and this group of people that he's gathered around him, and the Dimbles, as I hear, think yeah, the Dimbles, Professor Dimble. Yeah, uh, you know, I you almost wonder what what Lewis is doing with some of these characters, but uh, Professor Dimble seems to be a professor of something akin to Lewis's own subject, medieval literature. He knows Latin and he knows all these old stories. And uh, and what's beautiful about the book is Mark, of course, Jane and Mark beginning in the same place, which you take is just the place we would all begin at the end of modernity. Uh, not really for sure what we think about anything, but usually willing to go with the science, the hard facts more than anything else. And Mark is taken into that world, even as a sociologist, which is ironic in this because somebody like Professor Frost or uh, these chemists and these physicists, they don't usually like sociologists, but they're willing to have them around if they need something written up uh, every now and then. And so that's Mark. He's getting taken into that world. But Jane, on the other hand, is being asked to believe in this strange little world of these literary types who seem to believe the world is enchanted. (laughs) And she does, very reluctantly. Follow along. And what I loved how Lewis portrayed this is because eventually he says that it dawned on her that she would have to become a Christian. So she's willing to believe in an enchanted, grace-filled world. She's willing to believe in the presence of God. She's willing to believe in all sorts of things. But then she realizes, well, it's not just about believing these things or knowing these things or even ascertaining reality correctly, but you actually have to become a Christian, and that's how you truly enter into this other little group who Ransom is in some way, uh, he's a director of, they use that language, but is he really in charge? And you see a different model for authority. So he's not afraid to lay down some rules or tell people what they can and can't do, but he's never overbearing. He's not the head of anything, really. You know, He's always taking his orders from these angelic beings, and ultimately what you take to be, he's taking orders from God. And um, the Dimbles fit in quite nicely there. This elderly couple who have, you know, he he's a true academic. He's not the academic who is worried about the politics of the university. He's the academic that's worried about his books. And um, you have a maid who isn't a maid when she joins this group. And so you see how Lewis is working with these Christian themes that are in the New Testament as well. There is no slave nor free uh, not because all of a sudden everybody's equal, but because we treat everybody with love and kindness. And then you even have a skeptic in the group. McPhee is an old, he's an Ulsterman, uh, Northern Ireland, of course, Scotsman. And uh, he doesn't really believe in any of it, but 
you know, he's not a bad guy. <laughs> and so he's willing to go along with what they need. And uh, it's a neat little picture that you, and, and another lady, Grace Ironwood, who is there. And she's the first person that Jane goes to with her dreams. So you have this other little group who is in some way imagining and realizing that they are in combat with evil. And yet all they do is sit around the house and play with this tame bear that showed up and uh, trade off on who's going to cook and do dishes. And so it's this mundane life that they understand is really enchanted and is already overcoming the evil that a threat that's posed by the nice. And that's sort of the, the McPhee character <coughs> that he... Yeah, he can't get it. He can't get it because he, he is a hard rationalist yeah. in some ways. And yet you understand, yeah, but he's sort of a good-hearted kind mm-hmm. of guy. Uh, but he is of the type that would punch the devil in the nose. Mm-hmm. And so, in a sense, he's rendered useless because this battle, as Ransom makes clear, is one in which he would be rendered mm-hmm. you know, childlike. And, in fact, it, it proves not to be of much use. You know, I just had a funny thought, because I think that McPhee actually brings up people like Adam Smith and the Scottish uh, Common Sense Enlightenment and things like that, Common Sense Realism, the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, and Lewis has a theme in this book that's implicit and addressed, that history, as it moves on, is moving towards a point where everything is separating, where you really have to take a hard and fast stand against evil, because the more revelation or the more people are able to be true Christians uh, not that he doesn't think revelation is still progressing necessarily but the more people are being Christians and the kingdom of God is becoming more real then evil takes on a counter stance to that and what you you almost get somebody like McPhee who yeah like Adam Smith or David Hume you know they're really not that bad but Think of, and they're kind of interesting, actually, interesting atheists. But you get to these more modern-type atheists. Not only are they increasingly uninteresting, somebody like Wither or Frost, but they're the ones you really have to watch out for. And and it's uh, that they're, because in some way, again, you know, the, the, the role of, of interaction with nature and materiality is, is very interesting. Because you have the hard atheistic materialists who, in a sense, have real no, no real appreciation for nature or the mm-hmm. material world. In fact, it's sort of a mechanical thing that they would reduce humanity down. Mm-hmm. You, you, it, it's sort of the thing that you get in somebody like Slavoj Zizek, who is an, you know, a true atheistic Marxist materialist who finds human beings disgusting. And finds the the you know it, it, the irony of Marxism or the irony of materialism is you lose any appreciation for the actual material world uh, because in some way uh, you would p- penetrate beyond that or you would in some way imagine uh, that again it's the nothingness. It's true nihilism in that way. Yeah. So that uh, what you would make your god, you then hate. <laughs> There is no point to it. There's no point to being a Marxist who hates uh, being embodied, <laughs> living in the world and wants to destroy it because you're claiming that's all there is, too. So. And the other thing, and in, in throughout, maybe throughout Paralander and then in that hideous strength, is Lewis has this profound appreciation for human genderedness mm-hmm. and sexuality and, 
and nature and just the, I mean he spends a lot of Paralandra's describing mm-hmm. beautiful scenes mm-hmm. of nature and 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 of course the uh, this is where that hideous strength is taking us is he's describing you know the 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 little scenes of the intimate little community mm-hmm. uh that they're just organically tied mm-hmm. to one another they have a bear that lives in the house that yeah, the, the, in some way there is a reconciliation yeah. with. It, it, I mean, you know, Lewis is aware of all of this, but the same types of things were said of St. Jerome and these other uh, hermetic monks who in some way had mastered their desires and lived for God in such a way that they encountered friendly lions. And that's you get the same picture. As in, here's one who has lived out salvation. If we were to use a word coming out of Eastern Orthodoxy, here's one who is truly living in and practicing theosis and Professor Ransom. And, of course, Ransom, the very name, I don't know if we, you know, it's sort of obvious that he's the Christ-like figure, uh, that he is in some way ransoming Mm -hmm. uh, humanity uh, by, uh, in and through this this little group of people, yeah, he's what it means to be a, a Christian in the sense that I love the way Lewis portrays Ransom as both as one who is incredibly wise and seems to uh, be in control of the situation at every point. But then you also get little glimpses of how mortal and small and, you know, uh, he's just not really that important also at certain times in the yeah. story. And I think that... That's just pure genius. So you do get, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to truly be Christ-like or to bear the image and likeness of God? Well, it is something that's glorious, but it doesn't really have that much to do with our own importance. There's no self-importance in Ransom. And that's, a lot of stories will portray the main character as maybe not self-important in their own eyes, but they're just ultimately so important to the story. And Ransom's not. You get the feeling that, oh yeah, it would have worked out anyway. Uh, and and the of course we've talked about that maybe it's Tolkien that he's you know the, yeah, the yeah. philologist and of course uh, as the narrator of the story you mentioned this that he'll withdraw and in fact disagree with his main character at some point yeah and, and we're actually we're just talking about this the way genderness and sexuality gets brought into these books and. Then, that hideous strength it's a wonderful picture i think by lewis of what many of the early christians i think of gregory of nyssa especially are talking about when they imagine humans encountering god and being changed in such a way that you realize sexuality and genderness and all of that it matters but it only matters in relationship to god and so with the marriage, uh, the, the failing marriage of Mark and Jane, they're reconciled to each other. And also you see this great love between the Dimbles and uh, this elderly couple. And you also see these figures that are single. There's Grace Ironwood who lives in the manor. There's Ransom himself who is single. There's Merlin who we haven't got to, but uh, literally the Merlin from the 4th or 5th century uh, who comes back and is sort of the tie-in between... Uh, a world that was more in tune with itself, that overcomes the scientism of the nice, but also one that needs to be checked by somebody like Ransom, who is definitely more Christian than Merlin, who dabbled in the dark arts and who knows what you know seems to be have dabbled in evil uh, in some cases. 
but you have both singleness and these relationships taken up, and even on an animal level, the bear meets a female bear at the end. This because kind of Venus a funny, is coming Yes, here. Venus, Paralandra, has descended upon the earth. And all of that's taken up in such a way that it's it's pure, it's good, it participates in the goodness of God, and it's so very different than the type of uh, unfeeling, unenchanted relationship that Mark ha- is, is having to look back on his past with Jane, thinking, and he realizes, well, I really didn't love her, I just loved her body, and that was about it, and he makes these comments to himself as he is working through his own conversion. And that, you know, through, throughout this, the, it, it is really, the, it, it, it's Mark that is the ransomed figure yes. in all of yes. this, the redeemed yeah. figure, um, that, that he finds himself reprehensible. And he looks back then on his entire life and, and in some way re- realizes that he's been driven you know, in his desires, the desire to, to, to find the center of things mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, and so the, it, is a, it, it is a story. You know, C.S. Lewis can't write a book that there's, it's not redemption and redemptive, uh, but very explicitly so. Maybe, the, maybe the, the, the thing here that, of course, throughout both, uh, Lewis is playing with both mythology and with language, that that uh, the point in which the evil is overcome and is a kind of babble-like moment mm-hmm. in which all the evil characters are gathered around to hear this speech uh, uh, by the the, 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 the actual director, the, the figurehead of the nice, yeah, who who everything is coming out yeah. nonsense. Yeah. And so the the idea, of course, is that uh, I and I think that Lewis may refer explicitly to Babel at that. Yes, point. yeah, and they're all babbling, <laughs> and, but he does make the connection. So Merlin has cast this spell on the people of this uh, banquet at the Nice in some way that they can't communicate with each other. They're very confused, and then uh, the animals that they have been experimenting on come in and begin to kill people. Anyway, the nice is conquered without any human violence. <laughs> uh, just a, a, a breakdown. Yeah. In other words, if, if you think in large terms here... That's really ironic, isn't it? They're, uh, these people, these materialists who are thinking that's all there is are reduced to the same state as these animals that then devour them. Yeah. Lewis <laughs> uh, is brilliant. There, there is no communication. There mm. is no communion, uh, and the lack of both then it implodes, so that they cannot function. On the other hand, in the other group, and that is grounded in communion, in a depth of communication, which I think is ultimately definitive mm. of God Himself. Uh, the words then. Uh, yes, yeah. have a, a, a direct, uh, you know... Yeah, so uh, this is good, because this is the part in the book that Ransom has picked up this language that is usually referred to as old solar. It's like the original language of the cosmos. 
And Merlin can't speak it, but Merlin recognizes it. And when Merlin first encounters Ransom and the other people in the house, they all meet in the kitchen. Merlin, who is huge and you know comes from a world of kings and queens and knights and servants, thinks that Ransom is the servant to some king. And it's not until Ransom speaks to him in this language that Merlin you know, comes to heel and realizes, oh, yeah, I'll serve you, and meets Ransom as an equal. And so the power of the words, and everybody else is described as not knowing what the words meant, but they could feel the meaning in the words. So language itself, Lewis is depicting a language that has sign and signified connected in such a way that uh, there's just true meaning in this meeting and then the life that they're having in this little house. (laughs) In a little village, insignificant. Yeah. You know, yeah. That has become enchanted. Yeah. So maybe what Tolkien did with uh, you know the Lord of the Rings that at the end of the story, you know, uh, Sam returns mm-hmm. and, and he returns to the same place, but of course the whole place he sees. Yeah, he returns to the Shire, but it's he says some beautiful line. You know, it's not maybe so. They say, oh, they all think, oh, it's changed so much. But maybe it's not the Shire that has changed, but we have. Yeah, and and I think that's the beauty of the, the spiritual truth of this series of books that, you know, Lewis had a deep appreciation. I think what he's doing with mythology is that he's developing it in a, in a Christian, with a Christian understanding of seeing the world mm-hmm. as a kind of enchanted mm-hmm. place. What modernity would do is one of complete disenchantment mm-hmm. and reduction. And what I think, unfortunately, as Christians given over to a kind of modernist perspective, we lose this enchanted sensibility uh, that maybe reading the fiction of C.S. Lewis can, mm-hmm. can restore to us. Yeah, I think so. So you get this beautiful picture of what what is sin and what is... Uh, the goodness of God that's overcoming it. And in the end, what you're left with, well, it's a community of people who are meeting each other on their own terms, willingly serving one another that overcomes evil. John, it's a wonderful conversation. Appreciate you doing this. We'll continue. I think we have another conversation we're going to do about CSP.